Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. Today we come to chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and we're calling this a mountaintop experience. I, uh, I read about one of the most incredible acts of either bravery or lunacy. I'm not sure which. A mountain climber by the name of Davo Karnakar climbed Mount Everest. And he was the first person ever to ski down the entire mountain in a single run. Can you imagine that? Climbing Mount Everest in the first place and then skiing down. That's pretty amazing. I've never climbed a mountain myself. I did attempt skiing once. (laughs) And after a a few hours on the beginner hill uh, and one trip down the adult mountain, that assured me that I will never be climbing Mount Everest or skiing. So on October 7th of 2000, Davo Karnakar, his great fervor for extreme skiing took him to the summit of Mount Everest. His goal, a non-stop ski trip to the base camp, 12,000 feet below. It was a feat that no one had ever achieved before. Uh, A skier since childhood in Slovenia, Karnakar had long ago set his sights on Everest. He'd already made ski descents on some of the highest peaks in the world. Everyone has a gift, he told the Times of London shortly before the expedition. I know how to ski. Someone else might know how to drive a race car. Karnakar and his team had spent a month climbing the south face of Everest. And after just a few hours rest, he began his descent early in the morning from just over 29,000 feet. And as he went, he managed to escape the dangers of collapsing ice walls and strong winds and deep crevasses. At one point, he even glimpsed the dead, frozen body of a climber who had fallen along the way several years before. Four hours and 40 minutes later, the descent was complete. Karnakar arrived at the base camp, drained, unable to sleep, his fingers numb. It was as if I was light years from this world, he said in an interview soon after the descent. Skiing on ridges is like being on a knife's edge. Many times, parts of my skis were hanging over into, into Tibet and sometimes into Nepal. So you can imagine that I never had full contact with the surface. He said it was exhilarating, terrifying, and exhausting all at the same time. Wow. Talk about a mountaintop experience. I I love the mountains, the the majesty, their sheer beauty. You know, a a good sight of a mountain takes your breath away. You know, on a clear day, seeing the three sisters or or driving up north towards Portland and seeing Mount Hood majestically rising up above the valley. And then add to this, that the mountains, the mountains are where God met his people so many times in Scripture. And it's not hard to see why to this day, if someone were to say, I've been to the mountaintop, we know that that's a powerful metaphor for victory, for goodness. Consider from scripture, Noah's ark came to rest on a mountain and the human race was spared. It was on a mountain that Abraham raised a knife to sacrifice his son Isaac and his faith was affirmed before God and God provided the sacrifice. It was on a mountain that Moses met God and the Exodus was born. It was on a mountain that Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and Israel's faith in God was restored. Today in our text in chapter 9, Mark tells us that it was on a mountaintop that Christ's transfiguration took place. And then later in scripture, from a mountaintop, Christ ascends into heaven with the promise that one day he will return. Mountaintop experiences. The mountaintop experience is amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It's life-changing. But here's something to remember. While the mountain was a place of true encounter with God, it was not where people lived out their everyday lives. The mountaintop was rarely the end of the story 
for Israel or for anyone else. The valleys and the plains were where most of the action took place. In our text this morning, Jesus came down from that mountaintop experience and he continued on his journey with the purpose of freeing people from the bondage of sin. And today there are many, many people who still have needs that only Jesus can meet. And Jesus calls us, his people, to be instruments to those who are in need. And so how can that happen in our lives? How can we really be used by God to make a difference in this world? How can we experience life on the mountaintop with Jesus? It can be difficult to experience the glory of God in our daily lives. And when we do, it's often just for brief moments. And yet there are times when God breaks through the darkness of this world and he reveals himself to us in a glorious moment. These mountaintop experiences, they should be life-changing and they should be something that we Pursue. And so this morning, we want to consider some ways that we, as God's children, can position ourselves to pursue mountaintop experiences. The first thing I want you to note is that if we want to see the glory of God, we must start first by seeing Christ. By seeing Christ. As we have worked our way through this Gospel of Mark, we've soon seen that as soon as Jesus' disciples realize that he is the Messiah, remember Peter made that, that great statement just a few weeks ago in our text. When they realize that he's the Christ, as soon as they really see him for who he is, all of a sudden, Jesus starts kind of introducing the heavy lifting, if you will. Jesus then told them to their horror that he must suffer and be rejected and die and finally rise again. And it would only be later that they'd realize the even heavier news that his dying was for them, for their sins, and by the way, for ours, right? That in my place, he stood condemned. Last week in our text, we saw that Jesus shocked the disciples again. In verse 34 of chapter 8, he said, If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So those are heavy, heavy duties indeed. And those are weights that only Christians are called to carry. And then just when the weighty pro, uh, process of, of carrying our cross on our own, it seems so heavy, something astonishing happens. And that's what we come to in our text today. And so I want you to join me in reading Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. The words are going to be on the screen. The words of God, let's read together. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain... Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The Word of God. And so these three disciples, Peter and James and John, they saw something that no mortal eyes had ever seen before. And yet... This is kind of a story with some history behind it. In a way, it's sort of a a deja vu moment. It would have felt familiar, especially to those three Jewish disciples. 
I'm sure they would have thought back to Exodus 24, where it tells the story of how Moses took his aid, his disciple Joshua, up on a high mountain, Mount Sinai, to worship the Lord and to confirm Israel's covenant with God. And in the story, God came down upon Moses, shrouding him in a cloud of glory. And the scripture says that Moses had fellowship there with the Lord Almighty. And so, as Peter and James and John are on that mountain, it does have sort of a deja vu feel to it. But this scene with Jesus on the mountain is also, we could say, maybe a preview of coming attractions. This transfiguration story carries a promise within it. It's a glimpse of the future. The future for Peter and James and John and the future for us as well. And so you can almost hear that trumpet sound calling in the background. Dun, 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 dun. Something big is coming. The mountaintop experience begins with seeing Jesus for who he is. This is my son. But that's just it. It is only the beginning. And yet, friends, it's where so many of us get stuck we get stuck at the beginning. We see Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior. And then we just kind of settle in. And we put it on autopilot. And it would be kind of like Davo Karnakar climbing up Mount Everest. Sure, that's a great accomplishment. But nobody remembers him for that. He had to take a step over the edge to experience the moment of greatness. And likewise, if we are to see Jesus as more than our Savior, if we are to step into his greatness, then we must see him, and next, we must see Christ in his glory. In his glory, to really bear our cross, as Jesus called to last week, to experience the top of the mountain, we followers of Jesus, must see Christ in his glory. In our text, Mark reports three stunning aspects of this scene. In verses 2 and 3, the Greek word behind transfigured is the same word we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, something changing in kind from one thing to another. Jesus morphed. Now it's hard to wrap our heads around just what those disciples saw that day. Matthew, in his account of this event, writes, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And Luke, in his gospel, says, Jesus' clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. We must be sure to understand something here. Jesus didn't morph out of humanity into something else. It's more that he morphed out of mortality and into the glory of God, which was always his. And so the disciples are able to see him in that moment as he really is. Also, this light, this light that is surrounding him, that is him, as he looks like a flash of lightning. It didn't just descend on him the way it did on the Ark of the Covenant or on Moses on that mountaintop. It shone out from within him. Do you understand that? It is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is alive with light. In the book of Revelation, it says that in heaven there will be no need of sun or moon, because the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Jesus is the light. Many years later, John, John from that mountaintop, wrote these words when he was an old man. He wrote, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so for 2,000 years, God's people have been blessed by these words as we say to one another, may his face shine upon you. May you be blessed by his glory. And there on that mountaintop, it literally did for Peter and James and John. 
And then next, Luke adds that Moses and Elijah show up on the scene. And they also appear in glorious splendor, which gives you perhaps a glimpse at our own future appearance. Luke says of this event that they, that is Moses and Elijah, spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment out at Jerusalem. And so, so have you ever thought about this? Out of all the Old Testament great people, all the patriarchs, why these two guys? I want you to see something here. We're going to look back into the Old Testament at, in Malachi chapter 4. These are the very last words of the Old Testament. If you open your Bible to the end of the Old Testament, it's Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And these are God's last words to his people before he fell silent for 400 years. They didn't hear from God through his prophets for 400 years until the time of Jesus. In verse 4 of Malachi 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, what we need to understand is God didn't tell Israel to remember the law of Moses simply so that they'd be moral, upright, religious people who kept all the rules for those 400 years. No, he told them so that they would be ready for his coming when Christ arrived. So that the symbols and the ceremonies that Moses taught them in his word would be fresh in their hearts when Jesus came onto the scene to fulfill and to personify them. So that their hearts would be restless and ready to leave that long wilderness of waiting 400 years and enter into the promised land that the Messiah would usher in. Back in Deuteronomy in chapter 18, Moses told Israel, this is 1,500 years now before Jesus, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And now there on the mountain, Moses, aglow himself with eternal life, and that great prophet, Elijah, they heard God say, listen to him. This is my son, listen to him. Moses has set before Israel all of these powerful symbols of the coming of Christ. And now, there he was, on that mountaintop, talking. Moses is talking with the Passover lamb. He's talking with the Sabbath rest. He's talking with the one who would part the waters of death for God's people. Here was Moses who had received God's stone-carved law up on Mount Sinai. And now he is literally talking with the living word of God. Do you see the glory of God here? The glory of God flowing through time and eternity through the Israelite people up until the time of Jesus. And the next, of course, who else is there but Elijah? Elijah was the prophet known as the one, uh, the voice crying in the wilderness. All, all of the Old Testament prophets called God's people back to God. They called them to, to prepare the way for the Lord, warning them to repent and promising uh, them God's grace if they did. But, but Elijah, he was special. He was like the captain of all the prophets. He was the, the one all the other prophets wanted to be following in, in, in his mold. He, he worked miracles that were kind of like miniatures of what Jesus himself would do. He called down fire from heaven on, on the 400 prophets of Baal. He was rejected and alone. Elijah himself did not die. You might remember what happened to him. He was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire as if he was just called out of town and would come back to finish things up later. And so in the very last words of the Old Testament, there in Malachi chapter 4, listen to these words in verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so God left his people peering into the future, looking ahead, 
looking for the second coming of another Elijah, the prophet of preparation. And now, here he was on that mountain talking with Jesus. What do you think they were talking about? Have you ever wondered about that? Maybe they were, the conversation was about this long wait and all of the promises of the prophets that were coming to be fulfilled now. Maybe they talked about uh, Isaiah's prophecies of a great servant who would die as a lamb for the sins of all. Maybe they talked about Daniel's vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, literally as the clouds enveloped them. Daniel, in Daniel it says, whose kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Elijah and Moses, they display to those three disciples on that mountain, and they display to us that all of the plans and promises of God across all the centuries of the Old Testament, they all come down to Jesus. That is the glory that we can see. We must see the glory of Jesus. And then as all this is happening, the voice of God thunders out that declaration that it should sound familiar to us as well. Remember back in chapter 1 of Mark at, at Jesus' baptism? Remember what happened? A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Peter and James and John were there to hear that. And now they're on the mountain again. But now it's important for the disciples to hear God say it a second time. Listen to this. And a cloud overshadowed them, verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Do you notice that God added on a, an ending there that wasn't there the first time? Listen to him. Why? Why did they need to know this? It's because Jesus had begun teaching them about the coming cross because they soon would watch Jesus be rejected and suffer. Soon it would seem that no one would claim Jesus as God's Messiah. And Peter and James and John would hear Jesus cry out in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there that day, on the mountain, it's, it's as if God is saying, you're going to see all kinds of profoundly confusing things in the days ahead, guys. But do not doubt for a minute, this is the Son whom I love. And He is the one that you must listen to. He is the Messiah. He is the living Word. No matter what it will look like ahead for you, trust in Him. And friends, that is the message for us today as well. We are going to see all kinds of confusing things in these days that we live in. Amen? There's going to be temptations and voices calling, pursue this, join this, come this way. But no matter what we experience, no matter what we feel, no matter what we desire, we must listen to him, follow his ways, obey his words. And only when we do will we see him in his glory. Only when we look to him will we begin to experience the mountaintop that he so wants us to experience. But it's important to know that it doesn't end there. It can't end there. We start, yes, by seeing Christ. And next, we see Christ in his glory. But there's more yet that we must see. We must see Christ's glory in his death and his resurrection. Embedded in this story are three kinds of clumsy responses of the disciples that we want to take a look at. But the questions that they ask are important. Why? Why couldn't they build three shelters there for Elijah and Moses and Jesus? Why couldn't they say anything about this amazing, mind-blowing experience to anybody until after Jesus rose from the dead? And by the way, what does that even mean, they wondered. And why does the Bible say that Elijah has to come before the Messiah? All these questions lead to this. 
to fully bear the cross, to truly follow Jesus, to fully experience the mountaintop, we, his followers, must see the glory of Christ in his death and his resurrection. In the text today, in verses 5 and 6, Peter saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus revealed in all their glory. And he thought this was the big ending. This was it, right? The credits are going to start rolling soon. The movie's over. It didn't occur to him that this was just a temporary situation as he said, hey, let's build some houses here for you guys. We'll just hang out here. He wanted to start a base camp to worship. But it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. The big ending, which is actually the big beginning, was yet to come. So, no, Peter, no, you can't build some huts. We're not staying here on the mountain because there's more to do. And then in verses 9 and 10 of our text, you can imagine that here's these three guys. They've just seen Jesus and all his glory. They've seen Moses and Elijah, two long dead guys who are gloriously alive. And, and then it's a little hard for them to, to wrap their mind around the context when Jesus says, you can't, you can't talk about this until the rising of the dead. How could Jesus, he's so blindingly alive right there, how could he possibly die? How could he die in any normal sense of the word when the God who loved him as, the son, as his son had just told them, listen to him? What do you mean you're going to die? That doesn't add up. And it wouldn't add up. Not until after Jesus died and rose again and began to teach them how all the pieces fit together so perfectly. And so Jesus says, guys, you can't tell anybody what you saw here. Can you imagine James and John and Peter coming down? The rest of the guys are waiting at the bottom of the mountain and they can't say anything. Oh, how to go up there, guys? Oh can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell us? Can't tell you. Come on, Peter. You can tell us. No. Wow. Don't tell anybody. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13 of the text, we didn't read this on the screen, but as, as the guys are there, I've already mentioned, they, it's quite possible they thought back to that passage in Malachi, which we've already looked at. They had just seen Elijah and of course, they're trying to figure out how all this fits together. And Jesus' answer was strange. It's strange because he doesn't point to the Elijah that they'd just seen. We'll, we'll call him Elijah the first, okay? So Jesus doesn't point to Elijah the first. Jesus is pointing to another Elijah, John the Baptist, whom Jesus is telling them to their confusion, uh, he's Elijah the second. We'll call him Elijah the second. But then the other strange thing about Jesus' answer is it's, it's dark, it's ominous, right? He says, until they've done to him everything they wished. What happens to John the Baptist? He is beheaded by King Herod. Anyone waiting for Elijah as the forerunner of the Messiah would have expected someone a lot like the Elijah there on the mountaintop and nothing like the Elijah who died in prison getting his head chopped off by a crazy king. It doesn't make sense. But Jesus is saying that the Elijah who prepared the way for him and suffered and died at the hands of the faithless is the Elijah that would come before the Messiah. And so there's all kinds of foreshadowing here for the Messiah who would follow the second Elijah. So no tense, no talking, because neither the glory of Christ nor the prophecies of the Old Testament nor the full extent of God's love for his son would be clear until Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Only then would they understand. Then they could tell what they'd seen. Then they could worship with new eyes and new hearts and once again experience the joy and the awe and the glory of the mountaintop experience. And friends, that is where we are 
today. Do you understand this? We are so privileged to know the completed plan. We have the opportunity to live in that joy and that awe and that glory from that mountaintop because we have seen the results of the death and the resurrection. And so if Jesus is truly our Lord, then we are able to step into the glory that is fully knowing him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That that glory is for you? I mentioned earlier that there are weights that only Christians can carry. The weight of Jesus' awful death, that he died for you and me. The weight of repentance that should be practiced with regularity. The weight of carrying the gospel into a dark and ignorant world. The weight of living holy lives all the while while our old nature complains and tries to drag us backward. The weight of living in this dying world when we long for something better, that better home. The weight of dying to self, of serving thanklessly. That's a lot of weight to carry. But here's what I want us to understand today, friends. We don't have to walk with a limp trying to carry all that weight. We're not heavy-hearted Christians, burdened, bent over, because we can see the glory of the Christ. And that is the blessed counterbalance to all of that weight. We don't fix our eyes on the crucifixion on the dying, suffering Jesus. Instead, instead we look ahead. We look in our prayers to the Jesus that is shining like the sun. To the Jesus alive with light. To Jesus who reigns in glory. Look to Jesus breaking from the grave. To Jesus rising up into the heavens. Seated at the right hand of God. To Jesus the Lamb upon the throne to the rider on the white horse, the shining victor coming back for us. See his glory. And when you see his glory, it begins to balance out the weight of the cross that we're called to carry. 1,500 years ago, the emperor of Rome built a tomb for her, his beloved sister. Her name was Placidia. The small building was designed in the shape of a cross with a vaulted ceiling covered with beautiful mosaics of swirling stars in an indigo sky. And the focal point of that mosaic ceiling was a depiction of Jesus, the good shepherd, surrounded by sheep in an emerald paradise. Now, the mausoleum of Gala Placidia still stands in Ravenna, Italy today. It's been called the earliest and best preserved of all mosaic monuments and one of the most artistically perfect. But visitors, perhaps who have admired the mosaics of the Gala Placidia in travel books or in videos, they're often disappointed when they enter the old brick building. The structure has only very tiny windows, and what little light that does enter is usually blocked by a mass of tourists cramming into this small building. And so the most artistically perfect mosaic monument, the inspiring vision of the Good Shepherd in a starry paradise is hidden behind a veil of darkness in a hot, stuffy building. But the impatient who leave the chapel will miss a stunning unveiling. With no advance notice, spotlights near the ceiling are turned on only when a tourist finally manages to drop a coin into the small metal box along the wall. The light 
illuminates the iridescent tiles of the mosaic, but only for a few seconds. And then the lights go off. One visitor described the experience. The lights come on for a brief moment, the briefest of moments. The eye doesn't have time to take it all in. The eye casts about. The dull, hot darkness overhead becomes a starry sky, a dark blue cupola with huge shimmering stars that seem startlingly, startlingly close. Ah, comes the sound from below. And then the light goes out. And again, there's darkness. Darker even than before. The bright bursts of illumination are repeated over and over again, divided by darkness of unpredictable lengths of time. But each time the lights come on, the visitors are given another glimpse of the world behind the shadows, and their eyes capture another element previously unseen. Deer drinking from springs. Jesus gently reaching out to his sheep that look lovingly at their shepherd. After seeing the mosaic, one visitor wrote, I have never seen anything so sublime in my life. It makes you want to weep. Wow. You know, it can be difficult to experience the glory of God in our daily life. Through the ups and downs of daily living, it's hard. But when we do, it's like a bright light for a moment in time. God breaks through the darkness of this world and he reveals himself, maybe just for a moment, inviting us up to the mountaintop. And so friends, when life seems like a tangled mess, when nothing seems to work out in your life, when there seems to be no answer for the terrible losses or the cruelty or the misguided power in this world, Remember, remember Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus on the mountaintop, putting all the pieces together, seeing how God worked all things together for good, even through rejection and suffering and the death of his glorious son. There is nothing in this terrible world that Jesus cannot overcome. There is no crime or catastrophe or heartache that will not be brought under his control. And so, friends, when the weight is heavy upon you, when you can't do it on your own, climb the mountain. Climb the mountain and remember how deep the Father's love is for his Son and how great their sacrifice was for you, and allow that glory to lift your burdens, if just for a moment, as you see the glory of the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have, the hope that is only possible because of Jesus, and Lord, sometimes that hope seems so far off. Lord, as we struggle with the stuff of this world, with angry people and hardships and financial struggles, and Lord, the list could go on. Lord, sometimes we are so weighed down because we're not looking to the mountaintop. And so, Father, we pray that you will remind us gently, remind us, look to you, See the glory of your Son. Thank you, Father, that we've been privileged to see glimpses already. And thank you, Lord, that you have more glimpses ready to share with us as we look to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. And so this week, may his face shine upon you as you walk through the activities of your week. Let's stand together as we have our closing song.